0: This is the Music Buzz Podcast. The Music Buzz Podcast features candid discussions with and about those behind the scenes in the music business, including industry veterans representing the segments of Musician, Design, and Live. All three music buzz podcast hosts have spent their careers working with the biggest names in entertainment and have been and are still a fly on the wall. Dan Clark as the drummer for John Mellencamp's band for over twenty years and various solo projects. Hugh Sign a world-renowned graphic artist for the biggest names in music and the corporate world. Andy Wilson an award-winning marketing and public relations executive with over twenty years of combined multi-level entertainment industry experience in the music and sports business
1: now let's buzz hello and welcome back to the music buzz podcast i'm one of your co-hosts andy wilson along with dane clark how's it going dane great andy how are you today i'm good happy new year to you and also hugh Stein. how you doing i'm doing
2: well thank you andrew and yes it is so nice to get 21 behind us
1: yes absolutely and this is our one year anniversary episode um hard to believe in some ways it went really really fast it's been a great year we had the opportunity to talk to you know some friends uh reconnect with people um talk to some heroes along the way and i think you know to kick this one year anniversary off i think it's kind of maybe maybe a good idea to point out the obvious the the whole reason for the podcast is a the three of us like to talk and like to talk to each other and like to talk to other people and get stories it really comes yeah. down to stories and a lot of the people that we talk to on this show are people that were there uh, maybe not the most well-known person in a band or um, or in the industry, but uh, somebody that uh, was there, uh, literally a fly on the wall or still is a fly on the wall, as the three of us are and have been throughout our career. So Music Buzz podcast was really kind of hatched from that idea. And honestly, it's exceeded my expectations. I don't know about you guys. Uh, you know, we come out well, every great. two weeks and... We continue to chart with this podcast all over the world. Um, You know, we see, uh, gosh, I was looking the other day, not just the U.S. and Canada, but consistently charting in Brazil and the Netherlands and the U.K., amongst others, many others. And so Israel, it's been interesting to see people listening all over the world. And uh, so I think people, I think it all comes down to people like stories.
2: But are we big in Japan?
1: but <laughs> everybody's big. that's actually a good question because i don't think we are big in japan we need to work it's on a that. great song it's a great song too yeah 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 absolutely
3: well, we, we need to work on that
1: yeah absolutely so happy new happy new year to you guys and uh looking Thanks. forward to season yeah. two so uh i'll kick it over to you dane what are your thoughts
3: well it's 2022 gosh john mellencamp's uh record that i played on this past year will be the whole record will be released strictly a one-eyed jack is the is the title of that and of course the uh the wasted days single came out a few months ago with uh, bruce springsteen that was quite a a high point to have a song that i was involved in and played on and that the boss came along and did his part on and he's on quite a few other songs on the record too so uh
1: right well it's been highly publicized that john yeah. and bruce are buddies what was yeah. that experience like for you? I mean, obviously
3: many years of working with John and whatnot, but what was that like? Unfortunately, the way things ended up being uh we had cut all the tracks, and Bruce actually came in a few months later right uh, towards the towards the mixing time, so I didn't actually get to go down and hang out or um with him, but I have met him before during the vote for change tour back in two thousand five. He was a really nice guy right. But uh yeah he came and hung with John and uh was sighted by several people in Bloomington I think walking around really? and uh yeah he uh played there there's a cut that I'm not going to mention any s- until the record comes out I you know don't want to uh, screw the pooch but uh th- there's a song he plays a lead guitar solo on that it gets back to the the bar band days of uh the early Springsteen thing and it's really cool I love it's it. really raw and uh it's that that's going to be a fun track so i think people are going to going to enjoy this record you know when i
1: started my career with sunshine promotions back in the back in the glory days some of my first few shows were at the field house in downtown indy at the time at which had just opened because you know market square arena the last few shows at market square were were that year and then springsteen was the first show at the field house and then of course that that new year's eve you guys played, we played. no one can't play uh, new year's right. eve heading into yep. y2k <laughs> yeah and, um, that's right gosh you know that's been a long time ago but still springsteen man is still one of the most spontaneous uh live performers you know ever and still it's amazing a guy can still do what he does for three and a half hours a night when he's out
3: there. i know <laughs> it's he's incredible. got a, he's got an incredible amount of energy i i saw bruce in uh in 78, on the Darkness on the Edge of Town, that, that's the name of the album, I believe, right? The one that came out then? mm mm-hmm. The record had just hit the stores, and and I just I remember buying a couple tickets, and me and my buddy went, and it was at the convention center. And what I remember about it the most was I was 18, and, uh, you know, what I remember is at the end of the show, he got a bunch of strippers from the Red Garter to come over and dance on the last song now Mm -hmm. there wasn't a teenage guy there that wasn't enjoying that let me just tell you that was quite quite a spectacle
1: what's the red garter i don't don't know what that is
3: (laughs) well it's a it's a gentleman's club i don't i don't know if the the the, it was a french place the red gate i'm not sure that it's still there (laughs) and i had never you know i mean when i was 17 or 18 i looked like i was about 12 so i wouldn't have gotten in back then right
2: did you ever drum for um exotic dancers Dane? No,
3: it's something I've always aspired to though. It's not, I'm, I'm saying that I still wouldn't, you know, I, I have if, still a career goal. Huh? You actually have.
2: Yeah. There, there was a
3: friend of mine in Toronto who
2: got sick for a few days and he drummed at a fairly well-known place in Toronto called the Zanzibar. So mm. I had no clue what, what the, you know, the, the set list was and so on. So I just, I just winged it, but it was fun. You know, I was quite motivated standing in the rear, so to speak, yeah, it was it was a, <laughs> a, a new experience. <laughs> so,
3: was it a whole band playing for them? So, yeah,
2: it was yeah. a four piece band. Yeah, was it? Just, I mean,
3: were you going? You know, were you playing da 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 da, da that kind of stuff? Or we didn't do the, the yeah the, the stripper was Quite frankly, a lot of
2: jamming. Just you know, just as long as it had a good pocket and gave gave room for
3: movement. Do you remember any of the ladies' names?
2: One of the girls I did use on an album cover. It was a disco. A, a very you know, I, I don't even remember the name of it. Oh. I mean, it was for CBS CBS Records. Um,
1: hmm. Well, speaking of covers, um, I know that uh, Hugh has uh, worked on some covers as a result of the podcast this year that have come out. I know a uh, Rivers and Rust project Kyle Cook put out.
2: Yeah, it was great working with Kyle. It was a it was a great title too. You know, it was called "What a Waste." Mm-hmm. I respond well to good titles, and you know, you know, I've been spoiled by quite a few bands notably rush who never failed to have a great title right sometimes you don't even have to listen to the music you just know it's
3: uh you know well it, it's, it's a great image you sure came up with a winner for uh my upcoming record that's going to come out that was still maybe yeah f- uh, i'm still trying to decide if it's just going to be an ep or a full full album but uh memory mile that's
2: the project with donovan and
3: uh yeah. john sebastian right? yeah yep yeah, yep yeah. tell us more about that man. yeah well you know, Donovan toured with, uh, the Mellencamp band and I'm thinking it was 2005. And interestingly, instead of being the opening act, we played an opening thing. And then we played Donovan's part, which was about 45 minutes or 50. And then John came back on and finished the show. So it was, we've never done anything like that before or since it was pretty an unusual, Interesting. uh, yeah, for the for the sec, you know, quote unquote opening act to be in the, right in the middle of the show, but it it kind of made sense the way you know the way John organized it. It was really cool. Was that a it, John decision, like something? He it wanted was to, okay. That's yeah, cool. he wanted hmm. it to be that way, and uh, I think maybe he wanted to come out and watch Donovan play a lot, you know, during the thing. And you know what a treat for us. I mean, we played. You know all the hits sunshine superman mellow yellow hurdy gurdy man uh, catch the wind it's too bad that some bands don't or acts don't do more of that
1: kind of thing i i remember there was that several tours that uh the members from the grateful dead did with bob dylan yeah 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 over the years and there was actually one one of my uh favorite memories of anybody asked me about memories about the grateful dead or bob dylan i've got several memories but there was um it was after Jerry died and the members of the dead were out touring whatever configuration, whatever they were calling themselves at the time with Bill and Charlie Rose was following them around doing a, a piece for 60 minutes at a time. Mm. And Charlie was and his whole crew was in town and I had to address them on what the rules were for the venue, you know, corporate policies and the whatever. And they weren't allowed to record anything in shakedown street, which is out in the parking lots of those shows, you know, and, right various cheese sandwiches and other things going on oh, yeah yeah um but uh i remember going out there and stopping the filming because they went out there and filmed anyway unbeknownst to me and i stepped in front of charlie and he gave me this look like i'm gonna kill you and cut your head off you know how dare you <laughs> and uh, mm. later that night he kept looking at me all day like you know you shouldn't have done that kind of thing i was just doing my job and later that night, he came up to me and like tapped me on the shoulder. and Go, hey, I just want you to know that I, I respect what you did. And I'm like, oh, thanks, man. He goes, hey, if you want to come in the dressing room, we're going to sit down and talk to the, the, the guys from Dad and Dylan if you want to come in. And so I came, went in there. It was just those guys and uh, Charlie and the cameraman, me <laughs> sitting there. Wow. While he interviewed them. And Bob didn't say a word uh, to anything. He just kind of chuckled the whole
3: time. I saw. Dylan actually opened for Phil Lesh and friends. Was that what it was? No, it was, it was whatever it was. Now they
1: call it, you know, now that now they're called, you know, dead and company, but it was just called, maybe it was just called the dead at that time, like Dylan and the dead or something like that. At one point they were called the other
3: ones. They've had various names, but I don't remember, but well, I'm going to tell my story now because I went to see the Phil Lesh and friends Dylan show. Right. So, I went with a couple of high school friends and I believe Bob Cavoyan gave me the tickets he had and he said I'm I'm not going to go do you want to go he called me and I said yeah man thank you I appreciate it so we didn't bother to get there until after Phil Lesh I wasn't sure what Phil Lesh was going to do but he really is not a singer and you know I wasn't that hip on having to see that I just wanted to see Bob right so I just remember getting to the show we're sitting in our seats and we're sitting there for a while and I'm going, man, that's a weird looking stage set up for Dylan, you know, cause it was in between the acts. And then somebody, or somebody like a few minutes later turned around and said, yeah, man, I'm sure glad Dylan's done. Now we can watch Phil Lesh. And I said, what? Bob Dylan's opening up for Phil Lesh, yeah, which yeah. I found really odd. And so we missed it. Oh, and, shoot! Uh, so, well, I mean, I missed Bob. Right. We've definitely had the opportunity to talk to a lot of,
1: a lot of really cool people over the last year. It's been, um, it's been fun. I mean, for sure. And looking forward to what's ahead. I don't know who, who are a few of your favorites that you guys had the opportunity to talk to, if you don't mind sharing. Chris
3: Hillman for me yeah. being a the bird NYRD that I am.
1: Right. Yeah.
3: Uh, that was, that was definitely hands down my favorite conversation. He sure loved me that day. He was going, <laughs> yeah. he was digging me. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But no, that that was, I mean, you know, all the, everybody that we've had has been interesting. I found Steve Hackett really uh, fascinating. Having
2: met years ago in LA, was just happened to be the neighbor of someone who did glass, uh, sandblasting of glass for me for creating dimensional logos. This is all well before Photoshop. His neighbor across the road was Van Dyke parks. And yeah, I remember him coming to the door and, and thinking wow, this man wrote
3: Smiley Smile with Brian, you know, I thought. Surf's up, man. Surf's up, and good vibrations, too, I mean. Actually, he didn't write that. Mike Love wrote the words to that. That was already finished when he. Okay, all right. But still, that was a heavy one, too. When That thing he played on that piano, that, that grand piano that kind of sounded like a tack piano that he had, was unbelievable.
2: How many of our guests sit down and actually perform for us like that? That was pretty special.
3: I don't know. Maybe we ought to start seeing if they will, you know yeah there's been a few i
1: mean um van dyke obviously did and then i thought that you know the, the holiday one was cool with paul gilbert because he pretty much talked to us through the guitar for half the episode which was kind of interesting yeah
2: i have no way of expecting that by talking with peter frampton whose covers were always pretty much him which made sense because you know he's a great guitarist good looking guy yeah but as soon as we touched on artwork i thought well this is going to be a brief discussion uh, he ended up De- deviating from that expectation by by bringing out his father's you know treasured illustrations that he had done i thought that was pretty special that was cool actually that on camera cool. going yeah yeah showing showing us what his father had drawn mm-hmm. um, and, and very capably too beautiful work
1: yeah i enjoyed um uh, i enjoyed a bunch of them all of them really nils lofgren was a highlight for me just yeah i'm such a huge fan oh. of uh, springsteen obviously but also neil young and that I don't know if you guys have heard the new Neil Young and Crazy Horse album. And Nils is in Crazy Horse again. Yeah, bits and pieces of it. It's, it's called, great. It's called Barn. And it's it's honestly, it's one of the best, probably in my opinion, the best Crazy Horse album since Ragged Glory. And wow. that's a lot, you know, I mean, it's, uh, it's really, really a special record. You need to listen to it for sure. And it's
2: always nice to speak with friends. When Larry came on, I actually felt guilty for For the old home week nature of our of our call, because he and I were just kind of catching up, you know, it it was great. Though I have huge respect for him. That's wonderful, man. Yeah, yeah. No, it was great. I have huge respect for him as a performer. I've known him since the Gas work days, which incidentally is where I first met Steve Hackett, who happened to have a day an evening off and came to see the band that I used to play with. The you know the the Gas Works is where Rush cut their teeth. Max Webster. Any, any band in Toronto would have played at the Gasworks and seeing Larry performing this epic project of his, I won't say the title of it because it's now in the works. Um, he's been working on this for a few years with uh, Russ Mackey in Toronto as the producer and they've got everybody from Todd in Sticks playing on it, they've got Jerry Murata, um, Tony Levin, they've got an awful lot of good people playing on this project. And we've been developing the artwork for four years, so that's been that's been fun. Um, certainly, the, the kind of pace I like when I when I when I work on artwork. It's pretty rare in the record industry having four years to play with. But
3: there you there you have it. The thing about Hugh, the thing about that I've noticed with with the two things that you've done for me, the uh, the Moby Grape cover, which were we've got our fingers and toes and eyes crossed that will come out this year. Uh, Good. the fantastic, I mean, that took you all of less than 24 hours, the memory mile EP or slash album, which is, which will hopefully be out the beginning of March is my hope for that with Dane Clark, yeah. and the backroom boys that took you less than a day to, for that beautiful cover. Um, I'm, I'm amazed by that. And by the way, I showed that to Elliot Murphy. Loved it, and Donovan yeah. loved it too.
2: Well, that's gratifying to me because living in England as I did in the '60s, in those magic, you know, British invasion years, hearing Sunshine Superman, hearing Hurdy Gurdy, and all those wonderful songs, and I was a big fan of his, not even knowing kind of why I liked his music, only to later find out who he played with and why his his recording sounded so amazing. You know, sure,
3: yeah. Yeah, he had Led Zeppelin on half his tunes and, you know, Jimmy Page and John Paul Jones. And and the crazy thing is, the song that we wrote a song, when I was talking earlier about that tour that we did back, gosh, it's been 15, 17 years ago now, I guess. We wrote a song during that tour. He had a song that he just, somebody strummed a chord and we were in a hotel room and he sang this thing. And I took it home and wrote the chord progression to it. And then I wrote the chorus to it and it's actually going to see the light of day. It's the only song he's ever co-written with another person ever. Wow! Well, so that's a privilege privilege for me wow. uh, for yeah, that to yeah, come yeah. out this year. So it's been kind of sitting around getting cobwebs on it for a long time. And it's going to see the light of day. So,
1: you know, one topic that I noticed comes up a lot, I think maybe goes overlooked at least for, for me with you, Hugh is you're known for the, the artwork stuff and we focus so heavily on that but the musician side of your life having played on rush albums and other things but the one one reference that you do make a lot is the band you played with you know back in the 70s on the same label as rush same management etc the ian thomas band i don't know i don't know much about the ian thomas band i'll be honest i i'd like to know more about like your involvement with that band what you guys did kind of what you know why it kind of why you left the band. I'd love to know a little more about that, if you don't mind sharing.
2: Well, 75 through 81, I was with the band and we recorded six albums that I was involved with. You know, and I was really required to pull up my socks. I mean, I was I was pretty good at what I did, but, you know, uh, the people in the band already, Steve Hogg on bass, Michael Oberly on drums, and an extraordinarily gifted lead singer and writer, Ian Thomas, you know, who, who honestly had the most chameleon voice he, he used to do, even even for commercials, he, he would be called upon because he did the best dead ringer for the Beach Boys. He had a, mm. uh, an Art Garfunkel meets Harry Nilsson meets Paul McCartney kind of voice. Um, wow. the, the talent of the man didn't go unnoticed. He was covered by, by uh, Santana, Chicago, um, America. Um, they did cover a few of his songs. Mm. But I think, you know, these guys were really good players and really good singers. Um, And, you know, it was a privilege and a real education for me to be in a band like that. But Ian heard me playing on a a recording that I did when he was producing a folk duo called Crawford and Wickham. And he asked if I want to join his band. And I thought, well, that's not quite what I had in mind as I graduated from university but I, you know, I decided to go to the first, first rehearsal and so on. And it stuck. I mean, it was, you know, it was the first time I saw and played a Mellotron, you know, well, before I played on Rush's things. So there was a and Mellotron a huge- there. So you got to, yeah. Oh, it, this is the thing. The record, this is back when record labels stood behind bands and would buy you a Fender Rhodes, a Mellotron, mm. a Clavinet, you know, uh, an ARP synthesizer. Well, that Oberhein. was a long time ago. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, all yeah, these, I walk, sure. I walk in the room and suddenly I adopted all this gear. And I thought, yeah, I could get used to this. There you know, <laughs> it was, a, it was, it was Christmas morning, you know, and then of course, never having played Mellotron before I took to it immediately, you know, and, um, yeah, I really, I really enjoyed the process. But, the, you know, the band itself, you know, we had the good fortune of going out and playing, opening up for the Beach Boys for several dates. We went out with uh, Robert Palmer, um, Billy Joel at Massey Hall, Roxy Music at Massey Hall. Um, we did a tour. Who's the guy that did On the Border? Um, Was it Al Stewart? Yes, thank you. Yeah, yeah. We we went on tour with Al Stewart, and we had a, a you know great time. We went right down through the middle of America down to Corpus Christi, and you know, and then we would come back to the humbling realization that we had to you know earn a living and survive, and we would be back in the gasworks <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> where it all where, where it all kind of gestated in the first place. Sure. Um, yeah, but, you know, it was a, it was a great experience. But check out Ian's work. Definitely check out his work. And he went on to produce. Uh, or create a band called the Boomers with bill dylan uh rick gratton on drums and uh peter cardinelli phenomenal bass player and this is just a four-piece band but they're wonderful as well and you know they were huge in hamburg and places like that they were very well received there but you'll see the talent of the man i mean it was a privilege to work with ian and co-write a couple of things with him and certainly arrange things with him yeah. that was my favorite part of being in a band was arrangement. Um, And it still is. It's probably my favorite part of making music is
3: arranging. Well, good arrangement will make or break you. That's for sure.
1: Yeah. Just out of curiosity, obviously you're known for the rush stuff and other works, but was there a time when you got a call about a project that you were like super fan of, of somebody and like, Oh man, this is a great opportunity. You were kind of nervous about it. You know, even, even after you'd had so much experience and stuff.
2: Like, Career apart from being a workaholic and continue to be a workaholic, um, and I was very committed to doing you know my best. You know I was driven to do the best I could for each project. I i was working in Toronto predominantly, and you know Rush, of course, my own band, the, the Ian Thomas band, um, Max Webster again, Kim Mitchell, remarkable guitarist and singer and songwriter. Um, I worked with Max. You know, um, did a very early. A cover for Unison for Celine Dion. I did the design for that project. So that was a little taste of, of the upper echelon and the growing upper echelon of of musicians. But uh, Spencer Proffer, producer from LA, who had just had some su- success in the 80s with um, Quiet Riot and Come On, you know, Bang Your Head and Come On, Hear the Noise, all that. He was working on a, a project for CBS Toronto called Kick Axe and I was hired to do that and he liked it. When I, when, I, when he came up to Toronto, I met him and he invited me down to L.A., which kind of began a whole new chapter of my life. I, I expected to stay for six weeks working on both the Quiet Riot uh, album painting that I did as well as another painting through meeting Spencer's ex-wife, Trudy Green, who was, um, you know, she, she had a, a whole roster of artists of, of her own later to be a manager for uh for uh, bad english um at the time i met her she was managing this guy called david coverdale and would i like to meet him at the le mondrian hotel and and i did and i went to david's room and i you know he was a little concerned at the time about his voice because he had a little surgery done and so i had the distinction of sitting in a chair and having him fire up the band track and sing to me, you know, it was, it was a, I look back on it as an extraordinary, you know, uh, privilege and opportunity to hear a guy with those kind of pipes singing right at you. And, and that led to me doing that cover, that sort of fateful cover for for him. And then the call started coming in, you know, would you like to meet Meatloaf? Would you like to meet, you know, Billy Idol? And would you like to meet uh, you know, several bands, you know, that that sort of came my way as a result of my Staying busy and you know, hopefully keeping my level of workmanship up. Um, and it was at a time when the industry was on a roll. You know, everybody was paying attention to each other. You know, you know getting a call from Bon Jovi wasn't lost on me. You know, getting a call from from management for Aeros- Aerosmith was also kind of... So every once in a while, you'd hang the phone up and go, well, now, <laughs> this is... This is this is this is this is a good sign, you yeah. know. And and that that continued to be the nature of well, the I, I would career. Well, I think it.
1: to a certain extent, that probably continues to this day. I mean, you, you know, even the Joe Bonamassa new record from this year and obviously the the dream theater stuff. I mean, I would I would imagine every time you kind of get a call or you know, or whatever, it's exciting, right?
2: I'm hugely excited and grateful. I, I never presume, even during my long tenure with with Rush, where, you know, you, you slowly kind of got the idea that you you might kind of be their resident art director. I never presumed to be so because I knew how big the world was and how how much exposure they had to all kinds of... And they were all very astute in terms of collecting their own artwork. They knew good work. So staying loyal to me and I to them was always a, a lifelong, you know, uh, privilege for me. But, you know, th- you, you you also have bands today, who are considerably younger, you know, who don't, they didn't grow up with Rush, but they've discovered Rush, and they appreciate the artwork in this new era, and they make their way back to you. So, it's not like what you did then is lost on who some of these people are now. I get a lot of, oh, sure. I get, uh, I worked with uh, Barbora, um, lead singer for a band called Fairy Tailed in uh, Slovakia, and Gustavo Carmo, you know, remarkable guitarist who just finished doing an album with uh, Mohini on bass and, you know, really, re- I mean, he's a, a stunning player and a, a really nice guy. Um, again, I didn't know who he was before he called me. And these opportunities are equally important to me. Um, n- not everybody has to be, you know, a, a band of notoriety right. or with deep pockets. You know, it's, it's sometimes nice to just give back to people who are, excited to work with you you know and it's it's not about the you know and of course we've all adjusted our thinking about this industry that we used to thrive in you know i've used the phrase we we are feeding off the carcass of what used to be the the music business (laughs) that's pretty prevalent for most people involved no question about that not everybody manages to navigate their way from the their bedroom to to stardom, like like Billie Eilish did, you know, yeah. um, and, you know. And then there are people who just kind of break through the most unexpected, but extraordinarily talented people, like Adele, you know. Even Sia, you know, Sia is a is a quirky but super talented singer, you know, who, who just percolates in the background, only to find out later that she had written for Rihanna and Beyonce and all these people, right. You don't know these things until you do the research, you know. Yeah, kind of like
3: Chris Stapleton, you know, he'd written yeah a bunch of yeah. hit songs. Mm-hmm.
2: And the the Bryant fa- the Bryant family with you know uh, Felice and and Budlow Budlow Bryant um, who wrote All I've Got to Do Is Dream and
1: Love Hurts and all that. You
2: sure.
3: know, these
1: people are yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, for sure. That's cool.
3: Thank you for sharing. Well, and you know, and I I want to also say that y- you do good work because that's just what you do. And if you, Thank you find something that you believe in, yeah, you'll, you're going to make great art for it. It's like, you know, I've had the wonderful opportunity over the last 25 or 30 years to to record, play, write songs with some of my all-time heroes, like writing a song with Donovan, really? I got to, and Mallet Camp told me when he was going to go out on tour with us, he says, And Dane, he's riding on your bus and you're in charge of him. He knew I was a big fan. He was just kind of saying, I wasn't really in charge, but he said, you take care of Donovan. That's great. So, you know, I got to take care. I got to hang out with the dude that wrote the soundtrack to my early years. Mine too. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Right. And and so like John Fogerty, we did a tour with him the next year, I think it was, or Mm -hmm. maybe it was the year before. I can't remember that exactly timeframe, but every night. He was the opening act, but he would come on and play uh, Green River with us. So I bought that 45 when it first came out, you know, was 68, I guess I was eight years old. So here I am banging along with that. Uh, And John Sebastian last year, I got to, I contacted him about doing a version of uh, uh, sitting in limbo.
2: Oh, yeah, yeah.
3: So I contacted him about doing Sitting in Limbo, which was uh, a song that he had covered on his Tarzana Kid record uh, in mm-hmm. 73. And I had done a, at the same tempo but a rock beat behind it. And I just on a whim got went to johnsebastian.com and found his manager's number and sent him an email and told him who I was. Fifteen minutes later, I had an email back from John himself saying, Wow, I would love to blow the dust off that tune. Here's here here's my home phone, here's my cell phone. Ooh, and just to get yeah. to talk to him, work with him, and we talked we had many conversations that were an hour long. You know, he just mm-hmm. would start talking about the past and he knew I was a you know, I knew my spoonful history. And mm-hmm. uh, but get to getting to hang out with him, you know, John Prine, I got to work with John was a wonderful moment in my early career about 1990, I guess it was. Um, he came in and recorded. He said, this is the song I want to do. And I remember being in the control room and he played a song called all the best. And, and John Mellicamp said, well, why don't you just go out and you sing it and play it. And then we'll add the band after on top of that. So he went out, we didn't have a click track or anything. He just went out and played the tune perfectly, sang it wonderfully. And myself, Larry Crane, Toby Myers, and I think John Casella was playing accordion on it too. We went out and cut that track in one take live after that. And it's, I love that version. know oh, the version that most people know came out on uh, The Missing Years. But the version on the soundtrack is much more organic and cool. The mm-hmm. other version has like a drum machine on it or something. But right. anyway, that was quite a moment. And the coolest thing about this was I hung out with John later we were at the Bluebird Cafe in Nashville. And one of my favorite nights that I've ever spent hanging out, and I was still smoking cigarettes at the time, and we were actually leaning up against a cigarette machine. That'll tell you how long ago it was, was 1990. And we were both drinking a beer. I think we both had a cigarette, and we were just kind of hanging and checking it out. And he said, man, I really love what you did on that song, man. That was so cool. And you know, he just kept talking about it and He's just a nice dude. Yeah. When you run into those guys, I mean, not everybody that you, that was one of your heroes or one of your idols, not all of them end up having, (laughs) you don't have a conversation with them like that, you know, and sometimes maybe they had a bad day or whatever, but, but then there's times when, you know, this guy, anytime I was around him, he was always the same. He was genuinely nice. You know who
2: is the same? The same person, same personality, from members of 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 bands that are super groups, you know, like Aerosmith. I found Tyler, Steve Tyler, to be the same way, eminently approachable. Long conversations on the phone. Met him in Boston at the rehearsal studio. Really, really, a, a super nice guy. You know, he's he's not full of himself. Um, I I need to talk about this just because it it occurred to me, my early early days in 1970, and when I came back from England, I was still pretty keen on music and I didn't really have anybody to jam with. And I'd never really jammed with anyone, but, uh, Marvin Dolgay, whose brother-in-law was Trevor Veach and Trevor Veach used to play guitar with Tom Rush. And they were all hanging out in that part of the world that is now kind of, you know, uh, uh, where, um, Todd Rundgren and the band, you know, sure. uh, you know, uh, New York state. Um, and, I realize now and looking back that a neighbor of his and a friend of his in his early musical years who was born in Toronto was Zal Ganovsky. And I have with Marvin and Zal um, and and Val, um, who also went on to become president of Atlantic Records, (laughs) um, all these people were just friends of mine. Back in the seventies, not having a clue that it would all kind of mushroom into these different. Um, so
3: you knew Zolly from from the. Spoon? Not well. I just he, he came
2: into the basement because Tom Rush, Tom was in town, and Trevor Veach, who was you know, Marvin's brother-in-law, came over. So okay. and it, Trevor would 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 jam with you know Garth and all those people from the band because he yeah. was in that, he was in that scene. So for me to be in a basement with an upright piano and a pump organ and just jamming and sort of finding my way because I'd already been a kind of a create I wasn't all conservatory m- music I was already emulating Elton John and I was already very keen on learning pieces that mattered to me when I heard that piano solo in in uh, lovely Rita I had to learn it so I did and you know I had the chops to do that sort of thing and I I discovered that being amongst other musicians and having that organic it was very I was very naive to it and I was very new to it but it really spoke to me though and you you yeah. all probably remember that moment when what it felt like because i already played drums with uh other musicians you know the 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 the, the former band called bare mother which morphed into tom cochran's band um red rider
3: you know i, I worked with those guys we t- toured with tom cochran in 2007
2: kenny greer their remarkable guitarist and pedal steel player and you know very inventive guy he and i were very close musical friends too and we would rehearse in his basement and did a lot of blues did a lot of just jamming but at the time I was a drummer and then only only when we went upstairs did we start to listen carefully to you know songs that we both enjoyed and we would you know I think Abbey Road had just come out at the time so you know we, we had to both kind of dive into the piano parts on that you know so yeah it was but knowing that this world is so small that you would be working with John. And I had actually
3: met Zal and, you know, it's, it's amazing how small it is when it comes to stuff like that. It really is. Yeah. Yeah. When you're young and, and starting out playing your instruments too, it's like, you know, I, I started on piano. So mm-hmm. the first cool song that I learned how to play was Michelle.
1: Oh yeah. On Beatles.
3: It was like, I was in third grade and, but it was like a, you know, a big note version of it. And I can still sit and play that. If I, if I haven't done it for, you know, for five years, I'll go, dun, 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 dun. you know, it's, it's amazing how muscle memory will stick with you. I mean, literally, you know, 50 years, 55 years or something like that. Yeah. And, it, you know, it's taking the initiative to, and then I started figuring out myself once I'd learned the chords and stuff, how to, you know, h- how to move around in the key of C. You know, like, you know, I was learning how to play. I could play Let It Be, I almost like the record, just by kind of hearing it. It's not very hard.
2: It is in the key of C, too. Oh, no, I know it
3: is. That's what made it so easy, you know? <laughs> yeah. But it's, you know, you learn that. And I, I remember the first thing on the drums that I really tried to learn, like the record, was the first song on Led Zeppelin 1, Good Times Back. Oh, my God. To learn that bass drum part. Oh, my God. And, and that everything that you learn when you're first starting out influences you as you go through. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, you know. I, I had to
2: un-Elton my approach to piano after I kind of got, so. And, and Leon, Elton Leon
3: and, and Mac Rabinek also. Why would you want to undo those guys? <laughs> those are the-
2: well, no, it's good It's good to uh, have it, but I yeah. found myself sort of leaning, I, I love big piano songs. Even to this day, if I started on piano, I'm very aware of the fact that this is becoming a fucking piano song, and then I will I'll slowly weed things out or mix them back and then bring other elements into the foreground so it doesn't feel like, you know, an Elton song or a, you know, right. a, a, a let it be kind of piano song. Um, it's very, very seductive when you're playing piano to play the instrument. Cause it's so grand, no pun intended. It's such a lovely, all inclusive, you know, it's laid out in front of you and how you play it and how, it how it sort of supports the song. Isn't necessarily the best way for the song to end
3: up is what I'm saying. Mm, you know? Sure. Yeah. A lot of, a th- lot of things I'll write on piano and I'll go, you know, it just sounds like a, another piano ballad with a lot of chords. Yeah. Let me try to figure out how to, or, or get my guitar player, Eric Scull, to I'll say, man, figure out how to play this like Julia. Yeah. You know, just to take yeah. it, take it in a different direction. Get it, get it away from that. Cause I'll always tend to do the same thing.
2: And one of my favorite um, observations about that migration from the, the basement tape to the finish is, Rob Ray fields. if you listen to the anthology mm-hmm. the scrubby little acoustic version that they first sort of played of that I thought yeah that's that song's going nowhere my first thought was if I heard that I wouldn't have the, the vision that George Martin and those boys had right. at the time you know to take it to that extraordinary space that it ended up in you know it, it was light years from the original and that you know that's like we were saying earlier that, that the
3: arrangements. I don't think it salvaged the song.
2: It just gave the
3: song. No, it the f- was a brilliant song. It turned into something that, like the world had never heard before.
2: That's it. That's yeah. what was amazing yeah. about it. Well, on that trajectory of small world, I, I'm pretty sure I talked about this, but I, I referred to drumming earlier, and I did love drumming. Um, I was not a. I never tried Bonham. I was. I sort of fell away from drumming. I was more in the Dave Clark Five. Uh, you know, Ringo Starr, Charlie Watts, you know, I like pocket drumming and I never, I got Neil Peart and I happened to meet the guy a couple of times in my career, bless his heart. Um, And I got that kind of drumming and admired it immensely, you know, but as soon as Ginger Baker came on the scene and so on, I thought, yeah, I I don't, I'm not good enough. (laughs) So, um, I, I sort of, sort of delved more into piano and guitar at the time, but, um, if I had no one, I got a call from, from Terry Brown, who I still consider Russia's best producer to this day. Yeah. Um, and and I think I've told you this story before, but again, small world, I got a call asking if I'd like to do some arranging, some strings and some acoustic gut gut string guitar and so on. And I ended up putting boys choir and a whole bunch of other stuff on it, but I, he cleverly didn't tell me who I was working with. He just said it was a singer songwriter who lived in the south of France who we later interviewed oh, in yeah, our yeah yeah. Yeah. So, you know, the the very fact that um that he didn't tell me that that we were working or that we were working with a, a noted drummer from the Yardbirds. <laughs> right. You know.
3: Yeah. And oddly enough, almost everybody you've mentioned I could have segued when you, you talk about Steve Tyler. I said, Yeah, i I hung out with Steve all day one time hmm. in the at uh Same. Um, yeah at yeah, the TRC Studios, which is now uh, Static Shack, um, yeah. they were there. In, Where is that? It's in Indianapolis. Okay. It was in 87. It was right after Permanent Vacation. It, they were mixing a live thing to the, in there that day. And they would, they had just gone through rehab. They were drinking coffee like it was going out of style. Yeah. I mean, they were a pound. And it was Joe Perry and, and Steve Tyler were both super nice. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's been fun
1: this first year. I look forward to seeing you. It has too. been. And um, yeah, we got a lot of great people we've already talked to, obviously, and we we'll get a bunch more.
2: Yep. Yeah, I mean, I I found this whole experience
3: to be both um, educational and a privilege, you know? That's yeah, great. Absolutely. It it's the same. Chat with you fellers. Likewise. Peace, guys. I got to go. Yep. Dinner soon, okay? Yep. All right. Yep. We'll do it. See you guys. Okay, bye. Take okay, care. Bye. See you, fellas. You got it.